of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel, and today I'm speaking with retired state's attorney, Trish Froelich. I met Trish and her husband this past summer at the Yoga for First Responders Train the Trainer in Wichita, Kansas. Trish and her husband traveled from the Sunshine State to attend the class, and we instantly connected. I'm not exactly sure what it was about her, but I felt like we'd known each other for a while. She reminded me of some of the prosecutors that I worked with over the years, and it all just kind of came flooding back. I spent most of my career investigating persons' crimes, gang crimes, ag assaults, sexual crimes, domestic violence, homicide, which meant I spent a lot of time in court. And so when we talk about wellness, we can't forget about our colleagues and the prosecutor's office. Not just the prosecutors, but I'll extend that even further to court clerks, evidence clerks, and those who work with the victims and the witnesses. Trish talks about her career as a prosecutor, her exposure to secondary trauma, and what retirement has been like. She's been practicing yoga since 2008 and discusses how it helped her navigate her nervous system throughout her career. Trish became a certified yoga teacher after she retired, and she talks about how her husband, a retired cop, decided to join her during her teacher training. Not only are they living their best life in retirement, practicing and teaching yoga, but they get to share it with each other and with others. One thing that we discuss is retirement. She has been retired since 2016, and she says something really important that I want to make sure everybody pays attention to, regardless of where you are at in your career. She talks about how prepared her and her husband were for retirement, financially and geographically. They knew they wanted to move to a warmer climate, and both of them are ultra-organized and discuss what they wanted to do when they retired, but they forgot something. They didn't prepare for that emotional letdown of retirement is the way she describes it. Trish gives us a really good analogy of the feeling that she would have after a verdict, even if it was the just verdict or the right verdict, the verdict she expected. She still felt let down like that adrenaline dump. She explains that that's the same feeling that she had after that she retired not getting called in or woken up and nobody needed her anymore and how she felt like there was something missing. This past weekend, I got to spend some time with some pretty amazing friends who I get to work with through an organization called Pause First Academy. We're all connected to law enforcement. We're all passionate about helping first responders and first responder wellness. And we're planning some training. And one of the items on our agenda was to discuss a retirement training. The conversation spilled over to my living room that night when my friend Darren, who was talking to my husband, Darren just retired from the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department after a prestigious career, and he was one of my first podcast guests, so check it out. Darren was telling us that so far his retirement was going really well, but he also went a step further to tell us that he put a lot of time into preparing for it, and I don't just mean financially. He discussed having a purpose post-retirement. He continues to teach and help other first responders. He spends a lot of time with his family and he already has things lined up to do. My husband, on the other hand, had the complete opposite experience when he retired almost six years ago. Someday I'll get my husband from behind the scenes and on the podcast, but in a nutshell, he just could not wait to go. He was ready to retire. He knew it was time and he wanted to get out but he didn't plan for the day after he retired. 
we planned financially and it was a really great time for our family because we had our kids older and they were at an age where they needed to be let off the bus or be that we needed to be home when they got off the bus. So it, it worked out really well. It was a good decision for our family. But what he didn't realize was that all of those years, his nervous system was so overly activated and that it didn't need to be anymore. And he just didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do with himself. So these conversations are really important to talk about because I hear this from a lot of other retirees. I didn't retire well either, but it doesn't need to be that way. Stay tuned because this is definitely something that we're going to discuss more on this podcast. But let's get back to Trish. She talks about how she learned how nervous system activation impacts our health, our weight, and our mental well-being. She started practicing yoga as a means to control her asthma symptoms, and it's now committed to teaching others on its life-changing benefits. I know you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome to the show, Trish Froelich. Thank you. I am so honored to be part of this. Totally humbled. Well, I'm actually kind of more the person who who's feeling humbled because um, when I first met you, so for the listeners, it's really exciting for me when I get to talk to people that I really connect with. And you and I met this past summer in Wichita, even though you're not from Wichita, and you came to the Yoga for First Responders Train the Trainer. I did. And you're one of those people that I just instantly felt like I connected to and like maybe I had known in a previous life, if you believe in that, but but no, in all seriousness, like you, you just reminded me a lot of the prosecutors that I have worked with over the years. And I think we discussed that. So, and you are the first former prosecutor, I guess, because you're retired now that's been on the show. And that in itself is an honor. Well, I'm, I'm excited that you're here. So uh, let's, let's kind of just start like this. So you're retired, you are from Connecticut originally, and you worked, or at least that's where you worked, you're a retired Connecticut state's attorney. And which I would I can't wait to talk about your career, but you also um, are doing some really, really cool things post-retirement, which I really want to talk about. So why don't we start out and just let everybody know a little bit about your upbringing and your career and what kind of led you to want to be a prosecutor? Did you always know that that was something that you wanted to do? No, I did not. I grew up on Long Island, New York, which I spent 30 years in Connecticut with people telling me I had this Long Island accent that I never knew I had. Um, right across the Long Island Sound from Connecticut, I actually thought that I wanted to major in Spanish and be a flight attendant and travel the world and be a translator. Wow. And that was when I was in high school. And then I just kind of felt this calling. I really, I have this inherent sense of fairness and I can't stand when I see things that are wrong, I have this need to try to right those wrongs. So I actually took the Nassau County, New York police test in 1983. I took the written portion. Wow. Yeah. It was right after I had finished my associate's degree at night. And in between finishing and taking the test, I had moved down to Washington, D.C., to go to school part-time, and I wound up working in a law firm, very corporate law firm, had nothing to do with criminal justice. But I had already made that shift. 
I thought at first, well, I want to be a cop. I want to be a juvenile probation officer. I want to be a social worker. And really, if you put all of that together, it's a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. Because you, as a prosecutor, I was able to participate in investigations, but then see it through to its conclusion, which is more me. I have to finish the process. So what happened when you took the test? Did you take it and then just say, no, this isn't for me? Or, or what was that like? I was concerned. I did really well on the written. Um, I probably wouldn't have done as well on the physical, but I didn't get that far because it struck me that if I went to work and became a full-time police officer, and way back when Nassau County was the highest paid um, police department in the country, And I was afraid that if I became committed to being a police officer, I would never finish my undergraduate degree and never get to law school. I just thought it would derail me from my purpose instead of supporting my purpose. So, no, I never took the rest of the test. I finished my undergraduate work again, part-time. It took me six years to get a four-year degree. And then I worked part-time on and off during law school. I did law school entirely on loans. Put myself about $100,000 into debt, but it was worth it. Yeah, I can relate to that. So there, we have a, a couple things in common that, that I don't know if we talked about this. So I'm from the East Coast originally, born in the Bronx, raised in New Jersey. I don't, I don't know if I ever told we you that. We did not talk about that. Okay, so I know I have no accent now. Um, I never really had a super thick accent, but I did have one. And I'm, I think I'm one of those people that I assimilate to the people I'm around. And mm-hmm. so I've lost whatever I have. I have had people tell me, former academy classmates, that I had an accent 25 years ago that I don't have anymore. So that's first. And I have lots of relatives still back east in New York. And I thought that I wanted to be an attorney. So you and I are kind of similar. You flipped. I, yes, exactly. And so I decided to go the law enforcement route in my late 20s, closer to 30. So, so it's kind of something else we have in common. Well, and the age also, being over the traditional age, because going to school part-time meant that I was 29 when I started law school, um, way over the traditional age. But I was very fortunate there was a group of women that also was over the traditional age and we became a study group. Um, So that was nice. But yeah, when I was sworn in as an entry-level prosecutor, I had just turned 33. You know, and I don't know what your take on this is, but I knew that I was, you know, I was trying to figure out which direction to go in my 20s after I graduated from Rutgers undergrad. I went to get a graduate degree, started with the feds, interestingly enough, and was an agent and then went the the local Hmm. route. And so I didn't, I didn't actually, you know, get out of graduate the police academy and I turned 30 in the academy. And I think about that and I don't know that I would have been ready for a career in law enforcement younger, 21 or 22. And I know so many people do that, but for me personally, I don't know that I would have been ready. So I don't know what your take on that Uh, is. I agree. I agree. And I know I, I was kind of biased when I would hire prosecutors after I advanced through my career because I really wanted the people who had some life experience as opposed to the attorneys who were high school, college, law school, and really had no work experience. I think that those who came to the job with a 
little more maturity and and more varied lived experiences brought more to the prosecutorial role. So maybe that was biased. And I know even um, kind of shifting gears a little bit, even as a yoga teacher, you know, I'm always reading, don't teach based on your own experience. But I think that's what we do. Yeah, it's hard not to do that. I agree. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I would not have been ready, you know, if I started as a prosecutor at 24 years old. I just don't think I would have been ready. Yeah. And again, not to take anything away from people who start younger, but for me personally, I just, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I started when I was supposed to. I agree. And, and you're right. I don't want to take anything away because I can think of two prosecutors right off the top of my head who did do the high school, college, law school route, and they were fantabulous prosecutors in my office. So it's just that inherent bias within that we tend to do things based on our own experience. Yeah. Well, and, and so when you started in Connecticut and maybe I missed what you said, so sorry about that, if that's the case, but you, you're from Long Island, you were in school still in New York. Is that right? No, my, my educational background is really akin to, um, a patchwork quilt. (laughs) Okay. Because I went to school at night at a community college. I transferred to George Washington University in D.C., but my parents had already retired to Florida, and my father was diagnosed with terminal illness. Mm -hmm. And he really wanted to see me finish my undergraduate degree. So I moved down to Florida and lived with my mother and father and commuted to the University of Florida, about an hour north of here. Okay. And then I went up to Connecticut for law school. And no, my father did not get to see me graduate. But I was able to be with with my parents um, at the end of his life. So that was that was worth it. So, yeah. And I'm sure that that was much appreciated for both your mom and your dad. Yeah. And it just worked for all of us. So so that's that's another thing we have in common, by the way. I uh, I went. I moved to Florida. I used to say Florida, but now I say Florida. Uh, and I moved there because everybody from New York always goes to, to Florida. My grandparents mm-hmm. live there. And I actually ended up going to graduate school at FIU in Miami because my parents lived there for a little bit after they moved from New York. So, so you see, I do believe in this whole connection thing. And that amazes me. And we yeah. didn't have that much opportunity to really talk at Yoga for First Responders. But I, like you, I felt this bond. Yeah. And just, oh, I need to know this woman more. Yeah, me too. Definitely. And, and again, we'll, and we're going to talk about Yoga for First Responders and yoga. But I, I want to just, I want people to hear, because you've had a really amazing career. We talked a little bit about it. You are the Connecticut State's Attorney and again, another parallel, I know you did a lot of things over the course of your career, but in looking at your, you sent me a resume and you did a lot of domestic violence and sex crimes work. And actually that was one of my favorite places that I worked throughout my career was investigating sex crimes and domestic violence cases. And I worked homicide and gang, but my ultimate number one favorite place to work was, was that section because we did. In Wichita, we did sex crimes and domestic violence in the same section. So if you could speak a little bit to what you did over the course of your career, maybe some highlights. And I I know that's a lot to ask because you had a a long, very, very successful career. But I'm just curious what what stands out. 
I was so fortunate. I actually did an internship in the state's attorney's office my last semester of law school. And it was like landing at home. It was just exactly what I wanted. And the state's attorney offered me a paid internship while I awaited the results of the bar exam. I actually tried two cases um, before I was even sworn in. And then, due to a hiring freeze, I went into private practice with a very small firm for a short time. They were very good to me, but it was not for me. So when the hiring freeze lifted, I was sworn in as an entry-level prosecutor. And within the first year, I was second seat on a murder case and actually did the closing argument in a murder trial. And it was, I mean, I was just really, really fortunate. And I did prosecute narcotics cases and robberies and street crimes. But early on, I was assigned more of the crimes against women and children. And it fit. Um, at about five and a half years, I became a supervisory assistant state's attorney, which means second in command of the office. And then at just under 11 years, I applied to be state's attorney in another district, opposite ends of the state, from the New York line to the Rhode Island line. And, you know, when I first went into the interview, I thought, it's okay if I don't get this, because I have a job that I love. But by the end of that interview, I could taste it. I, I just mm -hmm. wanted that job. <laughs> and it just worked. They selected me. I was a little surprised because I interviewed at 8.30 on a Monday morning. I got the call at 5 o'clock and was told, you need to be here at 9.30 tomorrow morning for your swearing in. And my initial Whoa. reaction was, oh, I can't. I have a sexual assault plea at 10 o'clock. And the administrator said, yeah, you don't work in Danbury anymore. You're now the state's attorney out in Wyndham. So wow. it was a whirlwind. Um, I used to refer to it as a challenge and an adventure. And that was absolutely true, but it was also very, very stressful. Um, my predecessor was the only state's attorney in Connecticut history to have not been reappointed when he sought reappointment. Connecticut oh, okay. has a unique system. Connecticut state's attorneys are not elected, and they're also not gubernatorial appointees. There's actually a body um, called the Criminal Justice Commission. It's a seven-member commission. And if you want to be a prosecutor, entry-level, right through state's attorney, you apply to that commission. Interesting. Okay, because I yeah, was going to ask you about that. <clears throat> it's a very unique system. Um, so there was a lot of controversy about my predecessor seeking reappointment and not being reappointed. Um, I took office in the midst of a capital felony prosecution involving the murder of an 11-year-old little girl. Mm. And um, there was a lot of pressure because my predecessor had announced he was seeking the death penalty. I researched for months and could not find justification to seek the death penalty. So there was kind of that stigma of, oh, yeah, sure, the girl comes in. You know, she's not going to yep. be as tough. Um, there was pressure also and stress because I had never thought about it. 
But one of my colleagues called to congratulate me and said, do you realize you're only the third woman in Connecticut history to be selected as state's attorney? Yeah. And my immediate reaction was, no, I had not thought about that. Uh, I mean, it really, it didn't matter when I applied. It wasn't, oh, I want this because I'm a woman. But throughout my my tenure, I spent um, 15 years as state's attorney for that judicial district, I did start to notice the differences um, between the male state's attorneys and the female state's attorneys. Well, and let me let me ask you this. So what was the culture difference, if, if any, between your former office? So you said Danbury to Wyndham, and I'm not familiar mm. with either one of those. Was there much of a difference size-wise, culture-wise? I used to say that it was two hours and two worlds apart. Okay, okay. Um, the Judicial District of Danbury, Connecticut is on the New York line. Danbury is in Fairfield County, which is which has a lot of people who commute to New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, there's not a whole lot of difference between being from New York and being from that part of Connecticut. As opposed to the Judicial District of Wyndham, which was basically Connecticut's most impoverished district, very rural there had been a lot of mill towns, and in economic crises, the mills closed up and moved out of Connecticut, and many of the employees couldn't afford to go with them. So when I first went out there, I worked with two of the inspectors in my office, um, guys who had been cops and then came to work in the state's attorney's office. And we did our own study and discovered that our district had the highest high school dropout rate at that mm-hmm. time. Um, we had the highest per capita unemployment rate at that time. And then through the early years, I had some college interns who did a study, and we looked at the rate of sexual assault and domestic violence. And then other organizations throughout the years did the same studies, and we discovered that my district routinely had the highest per capita rate. Hmm. So our population was only 112,000 in a vast geographical area. But generations of incest, um, high rate of domestic violence, a lot of isolation um, because it was rural. Mm -hmm. But along with those challenges, I would say some of the most dedicated people with whom I have ever worked. Really people who cared about what went on in their towns and communities. And we would do forums and we created a child advocacy center. Um, Just real commitment and compassion. Excuse me. Well, and, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of times people just think of prosecutors or state's attorneys as, you know, prosecuting crime. And obviously that is what what your job is. But I like how you're addressing being proactive and collaborative with the community. And maybe you could speak a little bit more to that because I know you probably have things that because I saw it on your resume that you did as far as um things with the community, teaching, maybe that's just even educating the people in your office, but community members and, and also the, the CAC, we've got a child advocacy center here as well. 
And for those who are listening that may not be familiar with what that is, can you maybe speak a little bit to that and, and how those work? Sure. A child advocacy center is not just a physical building, but it's a concept. It's a place where kids who disclose abuse can tell their story just once to a multidisciplinary team, usually one representative, hopefully someone trained in forensic interviewing, non-leading interviews of kids. Um, And usually the other members of the team have an opportunity to watch but not be seen so that these kids don't have to repeat their story over and over. In the old days, you know, the child would tell someone and then they'd have to, the child would have to report it to DCF, Department of Children and Families. The child would have to tell a police officer. The child might come to a prosecutor's office. Child might have to tell medical staff. A child advocacy center is that concept where everyone works as a team really for the best interests of the child. And to gather facts, the healthcare providers um, sometimes have to use the sex crimes kit. Sometimes they do colposcopes, really further um, gathering of physical evidence. But that part is really designed for the health and welfare of the child as opposed to being used for the investigation. It may be used later, but that's not the initial purpose. So ours was small, a hospital generously donated space, and I'm sure it has progressed in the five years that I've been retired. Um, But we all worked together the police, the Department of Children and Families, the domestic violence providers, the, ch- the uh, Sexual Assault Crisis Center. And I think because of that, I had the opportunity to work statewide and go beyond my district. And again, I was very fortunate. I mean, I was, I was selected to chair the Commission on the Standardization of the Collection of Evidence in sexual assault investigations. Spit that out when you're testifying before the legislature. That was below. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that's the group that creates the sex crimes kit. Mm-hmm. So that was a good opportunity. I um, sat on the domestic violence fatality review committee, statewide committee, and um, chaired that for a while. We did a lot of community outreach, and we brought kids in as student shadows. So from middle school through high school. And then I was often a guest lecturer at Eastern Connecticut State University, which was in my district. And we would have college students come in and either shadow or intern us, intern with us. Um, Oh, I guest lectured one time at a prep school. And I think that was my largest audience ever. There were 800 students there. And it was really challenging because it was a Catholic school and they wanted me to speak about the death penalty. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a bit of a challenge. And to explain that my personal opinion doesn't matter because that's what they kept asking. Well, what do you think? It doesn't matter what I think. Right. This is the law. At that time, Connecticut had the death penalty. They no longer do. Um, that's the law and I'm sworn to uphold the law. So we look for the facts and 
that was that was really probably one of the best public speaking slash community education experiences. But well, I always not... felt. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I Sorry. was going to say I always felt that. Yes, a prosecutor's role is to prosecute cases, but it's not to put people in jail. It's to look at the big picture. You know, what's best for the community? What risk does this person pose to the safety of the community? Um, what benefit, if any, will come from incarceration? Maybe incarceration is not the route. And the reality is a prosecutor represents the people. And a defendant is one of those people. So we have the opportunity to represent the public and be sure to uphold a defendant's rights. I just couldn't think of a better career. I loved it. Well, and I was going to mention that that definitely comes across. Um, even though I know people that are listening can't see what you look like, just the <laughs> smile on your face, I think it's probably going to still come across, which is amazing that you can reflect back on your career and just know that, you know, it was rewarding for you, but also you, I, I'm sure uh, just by hearing you, you made such an impact and difference in the community that you worked in. And how cool is it, especially because you mentioned that that community had so many issues with um, with sexual assault, with incest, and that you were able to bring in the younger population, whether it be through internships or you going out and, and speaking. And that has a ripple effect. It you know it takes a little bit to sometimes have an impact, but think about how that might be helping today. Prevent and maybe make people report things more. And, you know, I think you know where I'm headed. Yes, and, and I appreciate your comments. And I will say that one of the greatest gifts that I will cherish forever is a memory book that my secretary put together when I retired. And it's, it was all digital and it's hard copy, but she reached out to every intern that I had had um, and they all wrote in that book. And I cherish it. There are days even now that I sit down and I just flip through it. Hmm. because it, it really gives me goosebumps just to see what we all did together. It's not me. It was what we were able to do together. Well, so this might be hard for you to answer, um, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> what If you had to pick like the best thing or a highlight of your career, and I know, it, I know it's going to be hard because it's probably a lot of things, but is there anything that comes to mind? And it doesn't have to necessarily be a case, but just something um, that you can think of and and if I'm putting you on the spot, I apologize that that stands out. No, no apology needed. Um, reporters used to ask me, you know, what was the most important case you ever had or what case left its mark on you? And I guess my answer is still the same, that I, I wouldn't want to select one case because what if a family member is listening? And it's not their case that I chose because they all left an impact on me. Right. But I would say <clears throat> the camaraderie that my work family and I developed was really the highlight of my career. When I was appointed as state's attorney, I <clears throat> came, you know, from the outside. They didn't pick me. I didn't pick them. Um, and we were thrown together as this group of strangers and through some major struggles and discipline, 
which I hated doing, but we really grew together as a team. And then I would say my last eight years, I thought of them as my work family. Mm. So I think that was probably, you know, my, my cases are important to me. I mean, I know this is not video, but if you look around our home office, I've got, you know, sketches from trials. Um, I've got <clears throat> framed massive poster of hand prints of little preschool kids. Um, my last case was a child homicide case. And the kids at her preschool made that for me, um, not because they had any clue what prosecuting her, her offender meant, but because as a result of that case, we donated to the Child Advocacy, I'm not Child Advocacy Center, sorry, to the preschool, piles and piles of clothing. Because when that little girl had her school picture taken, um, I had asked for a picture of her in life. And when they brought me one from the preschool, I said, oh, what a cute kid, you know. Mm -hmm. But where is Nevaeh? And they said, this is Nevaeh. She had been so badly beaten that I didn't recognize her face. Oh. Mm -hmm. But they told me that they had to dress her for picture day and that they had a box of clothing. And I said, okay, well, that's it. We need, to, we need to make sure that doesn't happen to another little kid. So the Wyndham County Bar Association donated, our church community donated, our friends and family and neighbors donated, and Joe and I donated this big armoire to the preschool and loaded it. Um, and we, we referred to it as Athena's Attic for another little girl. Um, who had gone to school there, who was also beaten to death. Mm. So oh that's just what stays with me. I mean, yeah. it's it just, it's a tough transition when you retire because I think I, I take all of those names and faces with me. Um, they, they made an impact on me far more than any I could have ever done on them or made on them. Well, and I appreciate you you talking about that because a lot of times, you know, on this podcast and I know on, on others as well, we talk so much about law enforcement and trauma and other first responders, but really you don't hear very much, at least I haven't, about how that impacts people who are prosecuting the cases and what you have to, you see and I mean, many times at least where, you know, the way we worked them, we would have prosecutors come to the scene. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the prosecutors yeah. have, have come to the scene and see, seen things directly. Uh, and of course they're continuing to see them, you know, through photographs and videos and interviews, and then of course meeting with victims and witnesses. So I don't think people, we often, you know, kind of sit back and, and think that these things, these cases, uh, can impact you just the same as anybody else that are that's dealing with this type of work. Yes, I agree. And I think that through the years, we have learned that we need to pay attention to that. Um, you know, we always talked about secondary trauma or vicarious trauma um, for the police, for the, the child advocacy 
people, but we never focused on ourselves. And I remember going to a great training years ago. It was called Meeting Issues in Prosecution and Victim Advocacy, I think. And we had a wonderful speaker who talked about what he called intrusive case fact scenarios. Hmm. I've never heard of that. (laughs) Well, he nailed it. Because if Uh you think about it, if you're handling crimes against women, crimes against children, any homicides, um, you know, I'm in in a grocery store and I see a parent get frustrated with a kid and grab the kid. And right away, I'm on high alert. What's going on? Or I'm, you know, at church and I would see the little kids happy, the Sunday school kids but visions of kids who had been abused would just surface in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could remember that man's name. He was from Sedona, Arizona, and he did a great presentation. I think that was in, in 06, maybe. But more recently, I have noticed that the National District Attorneys Association now has a wellness committee. Oh, great. Which Good. they didn't I was gonna have. Ask you that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <clears throat> yeah, I they didn't have that. Um, I represented Connecticut on the the board of directors. Each of the state's attorneys in Connecticut had a turn, um, and I was on the board of directors for I think three years. And we didn't have that. And I just went to their website recently, and I was so impressed to see that there are articles and webinars on wellness for prosecutors and the impact of that secondary trauma. So, well, it's about time is all I have to say, because um, I mean, we're all kind of late to the party when it comes to this stuff, but, but I think it's great that that's happening because again, I don't think that for, for whatever reason, we just, we, we don't, we didn't put prosecutors in that category of you're not a first responder, but really you're, you're doing and seeing the same kinds of things. And so it impacts you no differently than it would be to a detective or a police officer, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and I, and I have to agree. And, and sometimes I say in trial prep, we're looking at that, those photos over and over and over, Mm -hmm. you know, we may prep for three years before a case gets to trial. So it it does leave an impact. And then in retirement, there's this sense of, okay, I'm no longer on high alert, but it's it's like an enlarged version of the letdown after a verdict. Even if it was the just verdict, there was always a letdown after trial. Yes, I'd be, hey, great, this is justice. But then there was a physical, mental, emotional exhaustion. So with retirement, initially there's that adrenaline, woohoo, I am not on call. You know, that phone's not going to ring. But then there's that, that loss of identity. Mm, yeah. Real loss of identity of not being a part of it anymore. Well, so let me, two things, because you said two things that I want to ask you about. The first is the feeling that you just described. That's really interesting. So how you compared your feeling of retirement to that feeling after a verdict, regardless of what it was. So do you think, and I, you know, this is just your opinion, but 
Do you think it was that you were working, you know, you were so highly activated in your nervous system and your stress response, go, 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 probably not getting enough sleep, constantly being exposed to, to looking at different things that most people don't see. And then, and then it's done. And then, absolutely. So, and just not really kind of going from here to here and maybe not really having something in place to prepare you like almost like a transition or something. It's like you go from one extreme to the other. And it sounds a lot like what you're describing with retirement, like going from zero, like three, you know, all the way up here to a hundred and then down to zero. Is that? That is it. Because if you think about it, whether a prosecutor is on trial or engaged in the daily grind, it's you're always activated. It's always high alert. It's, okay, what's coming in next? And then if it is a trial, you know, some days we would get in at 6.30 or 7 in the morning to prep before the, the witnesses took the stand at 10, and then court would end at 5, and we would order some pizza and be in the office till 10. So, yeah, really not great dietary habits, no time to exercise, um, disrupted sleep if it wasn't pure exhausted sleep, then it was disrupted because, wait a minute, what did I forget to say? Or, oh, wait, I can't believe I said that. Um, and then that letdown when it's over. So retirement, as much as it initially was, wow, this is great and I love it, I did feel somewhat out of place, you know, and especially because we moved. We moved immediately um, from Connecticut. We had long planned our move to Florida. But meeting new people and people who did not and could not process what it was like to have lived in the criminal justice system was really challenging. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, so I guess I, I didn't realize that. So not only is retirement a big transition, and we will talk a little bit about your husband, um, because you just said we and he's retired law enforcement. It so is. It's not just you, you have a, you know, a marriage of this kind of stuff, which is a whole nother layer. And then and then you're, you're basically taken out of an environment that you're familiar with, and you completely relocate. So and I don't know if you had friends or family in the community that you moved to, but that in and of itself is, is a transition. Yes, my, my parents had lived here. And then years after my father died, my mom remarried. So she and Pop were here. My aunt was here. I have one brother and sister-in-law who live nearby. Um, in our retirement planning, which we did for years and years, you know, there was the fiscal portion. Okay, mm -hmm. Connecticut has a very high cost of living. Will we be able to afford that on our pensions? This part of Florida has a much lower cost of living. Neither one of us likes cold weather. Um, we were done with snow. Yeah, I don't so, blame you. <laughs> yeah, no. Done with, you know, done with winters where you'd get two feet of snow and, and it could be five degrees some days. And so we knew we wanted a warmer climate. Um, and I don't think we realized so much while it was happening that we no longer had that contact with people in law enforcement. But then we've been retired five years now. 
But something interesting happened in September this year. And we know lots of people down here now. We have lots of friends. But we met a couple by chance outside a coffee shop. And as we were talking with them, I could hear Long Island. Mm -hmm. And we started talking. And it turns out they live about seven miles from the town I grew up in. And they're thinking of moving here. And the man, Jack asked, well, is this a safe community? And we started laughing. And I said, well, yeah, he was a cop. I was a prosecutor. Safety's big. Yeah, we feel like this is a safe community. And he just looked at Joe and said, you were on the job. And it turns out that Jack is retired from NYPD. His wife works in the court system in Suffolk County, where I grew up. And it was this instant connection. Mm. Even though we never worked together, Sure. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I think right. it's just there's an understanding that's that's different. Well, I think there's a reason why it's referred to as a family or a brotherhood or a sisterhood, mm -hmm. because it is very unique, especially, you know, and I, at least this is how I feel. And I thought about this when you were talking about <clears throat> the relationship and the bond you had with the people you worked with. I can look back on the people that I worked with when I worked um 15 years in investigations and sex crimes and homicide. And we all, we all helped each other out when we would get called in or something would happen. And most of those people are still my good friends to this day. Those people that I worked those cases with work long nights with, uh, sleep deprived, funny stories, all sorts of crazy things. But, you know, mm -hmm. in the end, I mean, you're, you know, you're supporting each other, um, you all have a common, you know, a common cause. And it's just an, it, it's hard to actually put into words the kind of bond that's created from the kind of work that we do. So it sounds like that's, that's kind of what you're describing. That's exactly what it is. And yes, those shared experiences, um, funny moments in the middle of horrific situations where if we didn't laugh, we would have been deeply depressed or crying all the time. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. Those people today are my friends. And although they're long distance, it doesn't matter. Thanks to technology, you know, we text, um, yeah. and we just stay connected and it's a really good connection. It's history. It's, it's a bond and it's, it's a sense of home. Yeah, and that's that's great that you're able to to still maintain those friendships and it's so cool that you've met, you know, all these new people in this this next chapter of your life, too. It is great. It's it's really we're we're very fortunate. We really are. So, I don't want to ignore the 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 uh, identity issue that you brought up because it sounds like you guys did a really good thorough job in preparing financially for retirement, but it didn't doesn't sound like from what you're saying that you thought much about how it would be to one day just not be doing that job and how it impacted you. Is, is that something that, you guys talked about or thought about? No, before? you know what? <clears throat> we planned financially, we planned geographically, and we planned our activities. We were both kind of nerds. I get, I will acknowledge that readily. We're both big into organization, big into lists. And we actually sat down several years ago. Hey, you write a list and I'll write a list. And let's compare them. <laughs> All these things that we would want to do in retirement. Yeah. So we were prepared on every level, except I think 
for that reality. And in the beginning, I couldn't even name it, that it was a loss of identity. Mm-hmm. But I found myself introducing myself as I was the state's attorney. Mm-hmm. And it was that. Isn't that funny that we do that and how different that is from other people and their professions? Like we ident- we so overly identify with our jobs. And there used to be a saying um, that my husband was with the Connecticut State Police and they always had this saying that being a trooper is what you do. It's not who you are. Mm-hmm. And I get that. Except five years after retirement, I disagree with it because I believe that it's the characteristics that make us who we are and made us want to be in the criminal justice system. So being determined and, you know, dedicated and organized and a people person and wanting to ask people questions and wanting to share, that's all what made me a prosecutor. And that's still who I am. Right. Right. But it was that loss of identity as far as being in a unique system. Right. And how, how did it make you feel like you, you mentioned that you weren't able to name it at first and obviously Mm -hmm. now you can, what was that like? For you and and maybe your husband, if that's something that he experienced as well. Speaking for myself, I would say I felt like an outsider. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we met some very nice people, and some of us, uh, the guys, some of the guys started playing poker, and <clears throat> the poker wives, we would call ourselves, would get together. And sometimes I just didn't feel that I could participate because I was still thinking in terms of being activated, not finding certain jokes funny, mm-hmm. um, feeling like I didn't belong. Someone made a joke at a dinner party one night and Joe and I left shortly afterwards. Um, it was a joke about sex with kids. And I don't think there's anything funny about that. And I, Mm. I really had to control myself. Um, and then really berated myself for not having spoken up for just having left. But, you know, I was doing this balancing test in my own brain. Okay. Am I the one who, you know, stops a room of 14 people and says, Whoa, let's talk about child sexual assault. And you shouldn't make jokes about that. Or do we just grab our stuff and say, okay, we're going to go out. We're going to leave now. Um, So right now, I don't know if it's whether or not I'm similar to you or if I'm just um, why I'm having this like visceral reaction. But it really pisses me off that somebody would joke about that. I mean, I know people joke about sex, but sex mm. with kids isn't something that to me, joking and sex with kids don't go in the same sentence. I I agree. And um, we don't socialize with those people anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people I would feel out of place because, oh, typically in October, since retirement, I get a big section of my hair dyed purple in October okay. for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. And 
there were women who would ask me why, and I use it as an opportunity to explain domestic violence. And there was a woman who made jokes about, oh, are you going to put makeup on and have a black eye too? Oh, boy. And I knew I didn't belong. Mm-hmm. You know? But it sounds like you've been able to find your people now. Absolutely. Though, the, yes. Yeah. Yes. And even though my Connecticut friends, my, my circle of women friends, mm-hmm. were not prosecutors, they probably know the role because I just didn't shut up about it. <laughs> so... Right. They totally understood, you know, when if we had tickets to a Broadway show and I was going to take a personal day and would say, I'm sorry, I can't. You know, we have an investigation going on and I have to be here. Or Joe and I once had tickets with a couple of two other couples were supposed to go out to Dallas and make it a weekend and go see Bruce Springsteen. And we didn't go because... Um, 60 Minutes was doing a story on a town in my district that was known as Heroin Town. So I just felt I can't be out of, I can't be out of the district. I can't be sitting there screaming for Bruce Springsteen. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a feeling of not belonging sometimes. Yeah. And you gave up the boss. For, for your Can job, you that's, that's commitment. I'm a new, I'm a Jersey girl. And so mm. Bruce is close, near and dear to my heart. <laughs> well, well, I did, I did kind of play, play with words there way back when that was in 03, I think, 02 or 03. I did play with words and say, I couldn't go see the boss because I was the boss and I had oh, the ultimate I like responsibility. <laughs> so. There you go. No matter how I handled it, I, it was my responsibility. So Right. No, of course. And and so if you had to, and I want to transition out and talk about yoga, which is of course, one of my favorite things to talk about, but Mine too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's another reason why we, we get along. Uh, but if you had to, to give a piece of advice or a recommendation to somebody who's considering retirement or, you know, retirement's around the corner, how do you think it would be, um, how do you think somebody could prepare for it to address kind of some of the things that you're talking about? I would say, yes, do the financial planning. But along with that, develop interests outside work mm-hmm. while you're working. Form the friendships with people who have nothing to do with the criminal justice system while you're working. Take some interest that you may have and and really develop it, you know, whether it's woodworking or martial arts or yoga, um, (laughs) and really develop it outside of the work environment to thoroughly prepare uh, for that transition. You know, retirement is not vacation. It's two very different things. Initially, retirement felt like vacation. And then... I was actually sad when I wasn't getting phone calls and and I would check my email and there was nothing there. So I would say, even though I had all these interests, really, really focus on that. Um, You know, whether it's a business, a cottage industry, part-time work, some transition. So had you been um, 
practicing yoga or in, involved in yoga in some way before you retired? Or was that something that you started to do after you retired? I had taken adult ed yoga way back in the early 80s for probably, a, you know, a six-week sign-up and go into the gym at the high school kind of yoga. Is that and, like the Jane Fonda? Like, is that oh, back in the day with the that kind of look? Or <laughs> Wendy, I actually have pictures of me in the striped leotard with the tights and the leg warmers. Yep. Okay, well, um, maybe we should use that picture. For... No, yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not sharing that one. Um, it was actually my asthma doctor Mm. in Connecticut who said to me one day, you need to practice yoga. And he was a very, um, progressive doctor. I would say back then, especially to say that. Yeah. And he recommended a neti pot back in, you know, like oh, oh three or something, um, And then although he treated me, you know, with the steroids when I needed them, he said, okay, we need to get off the steroids. You need to practice yoga, do the breathing techniques. So I went to a studio one time, felt out of place. I didn't recognize the Sanskrit words that the teacher was throwing around. Um, It was a vinyasa flow class, and I I couldn't keep up with it because I didn't know the basic postures. Sure, yeah. So I went home and got a whole lot of DVDs, and I could practice at my own schedule, and I could pause and listen, and I loved it. I was hooked. So then I started going to a studio whenever I could, Um, and that was, I think, 07, 08. And for the most part, I practiced consistently since then, usually interrupted due to, if you're on trial, there was no yeah. time. Um, or had some injuries. Um, fell on the day before we were going to a yoga retreat out in New Mexico. Oh, no. I fell on a sidewalk and tore my rotator cuff and fractured my wrist. Oh, yeah, wow. That re- that they were very nice and they canceled our um, reservation without cost. But so there were some interruptions, but I have been practicing pretty consistently um, since 08. So how did that, how did um, your yoga practice um, impact, I don't know if that's the right word, your job? Do you feel like it helped? Oh, without a doubt. Well, I, I knew you learned, were going to say that. <laughs> I, I, I learned to stand in a courtroom awaiting a verdict doing three-part breath. Okay, good. You know, um, And I would actually say to assistant state's attorneys, okay, you know, fill your belly. I can remember one woman, and she and I are good friends, but I would say to her, okay, breathe deeply, fill your belly, exhale all the way, and be whispering it. Um, So, yeah, I took that into the courtroom with me. Um, Just the breath techniques, standing in in my own expression of mountain pose in a suit behind the state's table calming myself um and i think having the having the consistency of of knowing that there was a i I could go to the mat and that that was my own place for whether it was 20 minutes or an hour or a 90-minute class that was a space where if I just focused on my breath, I could let go of everything else. 
Right. And, and I don't know how it was for you, but when I first started to do yoga, probably, I don't know, maybe 14 years ago, and I had no intention of it being where I am today with it. I went to lose weight and to get into shape after having kids. And I started to slowly notice that off the mat, I felt better. I was a little bit more patient, relaxed. And I was like, oh, maybe I should practice this breathing, you know a little bit more frequently than just mm-hmm. in yoga class. And it took me a while to get what was happening in my body and why it was so beneficial. And, and of course, that's probably what, what led me to, to, to stumble upon yoga for first responders and want to share it and shout it from the rooftops. But, but it was so unintended. It was just like, I stumbled upon it just, you know, just because I wanted to sweat and lose weight. Yeah. And I think that we all, you know, I wanted to breathe better. Sure. Yeah. But I don't want to say we all, but for a lot of us, we become so aware of yoga's impact and the transition in our own lives that we just want to share it. Mm-hmm. You know, I went for my 200 hour uh, teacher training thinking, well, I don't know if I'll ever teach, but maybe I'll just share this with friends. And even now I do teach and sometimes I don't feel right taking the the payment because I just want to share yoga and I just want to talk about it to anyone who will listen. Did you get your 200 hours? So for those listening that don't know what that means, that means you're a certified yoga instructor. Did you do that after you retired or did you do that? I did. Okay. I did. We actually, um, my husband was encouraging me to go become a yoga teacher. I had actually dragged him to a yoga class during a very challenging time in his career. And he didn't want to go, didn't want to go. And then started going with me a little more frequently. And then his back was bothering him from playing pickleball. And I said, well, why don't you come to yoga? And he came a few times. And then he was on a business trip and called me and said, hey, would you mind uh, if I do that teacher training too? And I was like, I think that would be fantastic. Oh, so wow. we did it. Yeah, we actually started in January of 20. So we were in studio January, February, and then COVID shut the studio down in March. And the teacher quickly adjusted and transitioned with Yoga Alliance approval. And it became an online training. That's so great. it was great. Yeah. So did, did Joe, your husband, did you, did he go to yoga with you before you guys retired or this all happened for him post-retirement? Nope. He went with me before we retired. He did not go as consistently as I did, but he started finding, we would go to this place called Middle River Yoga in Stafford, Connecticut, and it's a really nice studio. And when it would be over, he would say, well, do you want to go over to Middle River Cafe and get tea or something? Because I have such a good feeling coming out of there. It's like I don't want it to end. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. But he really became way more involved in yoga after retirement. It was more sporadic for him before we retired. But well, well, what's cool about it is it's great for him that he found it, but it's, it's neat that you guys can do this together. It is. It's really fun. We've taught a few partner yoga classes. Um, and he surprised me 
the year before retirement with a trip to Kripalu up in Massachusetts. Oh, I would love to go there someday. Oh, I would love to go back. It was, it was great. And we've gone, we've practiced yoga throughout our travels. So just, you know, finding studios here and there or just throwing our mats down in a park or on the beach. Um, Or we went to Sedona. Oh, another place I want to go back to. And we, we went hiking on the Red Rocks with a guide and she was a yoga teacher. So then we did a one hour yoga practice. Oh, that's great. But don't forget your favorite place to do yoga is Wichita, Kansas, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's on our must return to list. Definitely. You have a lot of fans here. <laughs> well, thank you. We we feel that way about our friends out there. It's like the well, Wichita family. Yes, we would love to have you guys back. So so for the listeners, I talk about yoga for first responders a lot on this show, depending on who my guest is. So Tell me a little bit about, if you don't mind, how you and Joe found yoga for first responders and what made you decide from, you know, living in Florida to, to come to Kansas for training. Because I know they offer trainings other places that must have been closer to you than Kansas. <laughs> um, one of my initial goals with my teacher training was to be able to offer yoga to survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence as a way to to empower them and for them to be comfortable once again in their own bodies and have some control over their own bodies. And Joe started thinking that yoga had been so beneficial for him that maybe others could benefit from it. And he Googled a few phrases and then stumbled upon, he actually Googled yoga for first responders and boom, there was the organization. Um, And that was during early days of COVID and there were no in-person trainings. So we jumped on the first one that was available and why Kansas? Well, one of our goals for the last 25 years has been to see all 50 states. Cool. And it has to include at least one overnight. And you have we have to do something unique in that state. Well, what could be more unique for Kansas than going through yoga for first responders training. Yes, I would agree. (laughs) So it was great. We had fun on the way out. Uh, We had fun while we were there. We met so many amazing people and just had an adventure on the way home. And it was was really rewarding. And it was something unique for me because of the academy experience portion of the training. you know, going to school part-time um, and not having any paramilitary background. I had never experienced having somebody yell at me because I was touching my shirt. You know, you're fidgeting. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but <laughs> so. You're like, I'm the boss. You're not the boss. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like when, when someone was asking me questions the other day, and my first instinct is to say, wait a minute, I ask the questions. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, it was really a great experience. Mm-hmm. And and we have tried to share that with law enforcement organizations here. But again, not being from the area, we don't have those contacts in, in the sheriff's department or the uh, municipal police departments. But it doesn't mean we'll give up. Right. It's just a matter of time. What you do have um, together, obviously, your husband and you, is that credibility factor that somebody who wasn't in law enforcement or, or a prosecutor 
you know, quite frankly, just doesn't have. And I'm not saying that's fair, but you know how this culture can be. And so that will really be beneficial. So I, I encourage you to keep knocking down doors because it isn't easy, but once you're in and people go to one class, I bet you that's all it takes. Yeah, that's, and we'll, we'll just keep trying. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what else are, are you guys up to with yoga? So besides yoga for first responders, I've seen some things on social media with veterans and, and I don't know if that's just your husband or if that's you as well, but you guys are really yoga is, it seems to be a really big part of your life. It is, it is on the mat and off. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say that either one of us totally lives a yogic lifestyle with the Ayurveda. I mean, I love my spicy foods and a glass of wine, so it's not an Ayurvedic lifestyle, but we do make yoga a part of our life. We try to share it with friends and family. Um, it was a great way to connect like with my niece up in North Carolina via Zoom. Mm -hmm. Um, I could lead her, led her through some of the YFFR practices, um, I, I connect with a group of lifelong friends on Monday mornings via Zoom. I call it my interstate group, and I lead them through a practice. Joe is trained by um, VYP, the Veterans Yoga Project, and I have looked at their trainings. One of my challenges is they do their trainings from 2 to 5, Monday through Friday for a week, and I just agreed to teach a 3 o'clock chair yoga class starting in January. Gotcha. So I don't, I, and the VYP training is in January. So I don't want to agree to take on a class and then immediately have to ask for a sub. But well, you I could do just go make Joe, you could just make Joe sub, right? Well, that's exactly what he said. I'll sub for yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> so, perfect. See, I, yeah. I figured it out. <laughs> but that is a great organization too. And um, when you talk to him, you'll hear he's got a great group of followers right here in our own active adult community. He's got veterans who had never gone to the rec center, never done yoga, and he's leading them in a blended class. You can either sit on a chair mm -hmm. or use a mat. I love it. I love it. So I actually had the opportunity to go through that training too as part of my 500-hour um, the first half of my 500, I traveled in person to Omaha, Nebraska, which is about five hours from where I live. And is that's how you met Anita, right? That's right. That's right. Yes. And she was at our training. That's she good memory. Was. And I really, really enjoyed her. Yeah. She's great. Oh gosh. Talk yeah, about I, oh, I, her. I want to connect with her. I'll have to find her email because she was, she was another one of my woman heroes. Yep. I will definitely be able to help you with that. So, so that was obviously one of the great things I've made so many good friends, especially in traveling to Omaha, but, but because of COVID, uh, the second half of my 500 was online, but fortunately the first half I got to do in person. And part of that one weekend, there was a, a veterans yoga project teacher training in town. Oh. And we were able to use that towards our 500 hours because our instructor um, was also in the class. So it's oh, kind of cool that yeah. I was able to go to it and also get hours towards my 500. And I, I really enjoyed going through that training. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. They ran a 24-hour yoga-thon on Veterans Day. And Joe taught a class from, I think, 8 to 9 in the morning and I participated and got to afterwards got to meet some of their representatives and really enjoyed talking with them. And 
my pop was a World War II veteran. My three brothers are all veterans. So I would love to do that and just, you know, give back. There's a, a new VA center opening about five miles from here. And I would just love to do that and, and bring it to them. I don't expect veterans to go to a studio, you know, just bring it to them uh, on, that's on their, in their, own, their own comfort zone. And that's what, what's so neat about these programs is that it's accessible. You bring it to them and in their world and similar to yoga for first responders. So one, I want to respect our time because honestly, I could talk to you for another hour, um, you know, and maybe we will when we hit, when we stop recording. Um, but one thing I do want you to touch upon, if you don't mind for those listening, cause I always take any opportunity that I have when I have a yogi on the show. So it's not just me saying this, why is it beneficial? Well, really for anybody, but let's just specifically talk about somebody working in the criminal justice profession. Why is yoga, breathing, or pranayama, why is it so beneficial in, in terms of processing stress and the types of things that we do? So we talked earlier about how I used the phrase, I was always on high alert. Mm-hmm. In neurological terms, that would be activated. Mm-hmm. And if you think about people in public service or in the criminal justice system, we're always in that fight or flight response mode. Mm-hmm. It's fight, flight, freeze. And we don't have the opportunity to then move to the rest and digest and recovery because science shows that that takes 24 to 48 hours. And that is not going to happen for someone in the criminal justice system because there's always going to be another call. So we're always in fight, flight, freeze. I gained 40 pounds the first year I was state's attorney because... Oh, wow. Yeah, I I didn't know it then, but my body just became this cortisol factory, constantly producing the stress hormone. Sure. Um, and, And holding on to that body fat, especially in the abdominal region. The breath control, however, takes about two minutes to activate or engage the parasympathetic nervous system. So instead of the sympathetic nervous system, that fight, flight, freeze, we start that breathing and it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, lowering the blood pressure, slowing down the heart rate, really allowing us to make more informed judgment, a better decision-making because we're not scattered. We're not we're not firing on all these cylinders. Instead, we can focus, and it's actually neurologically proven that we can engage that, that and I want to say it, prefrontal cortex, that decision-making part of the brain, by just by breathing. Yoga is all about the breath. Otherwise, it's just another exercise. So... It's about using the breath to link the mind and the body and moving inward, slowing down. So what I have explained to some of our police friends is you don't have to be on a yoga mat. You can be sitting in your cruiser and you're about to respond to a call. Do some letting go breath. Just 
Breathe in through the nostrils and sigh it out through the mouth like reset. You don't even have to take the two minutes. But then when the call's over, stop and take that two minutes of breathing just to calm yourself down. And it's not just it's not just those of us who find yoga so fascinating. I wear a Fitbit and I don't know about Apple watches. But on the Fitbits, there's a relax section. Mm-hmm. And if you just tap relax, it takes us into begin a two-minute breathing session. So isn't that fascinating that what yogis have known forever is now part of our exercise technology? Because it's all about the breath. Well, and you you just gave us an example before, just like intuitively, you shared that with another attorney when you were in court waiting your verdict, yeah. that example you gave before. So it's it's practical and it almost sounds like it's just too easy for some people, I think, too. You know, it's like, well, it can't be that easy to, to feel better. Well, exactly. And, you know, um, as you know, we just finished our yin yoga certifications and I'm a huge Bernie Clark fan. And I love his saying, if you're feeling it, you're doing it. Mm. It's functional yoga. It's not what it looks like. You don't have to lift one leg up and around your head and rest it on the opposite shoulder. You know, that's aesthetic yoga. That's all about what it looks like. But true yoga is about what it feels like. And it feels calming. And it feels really satisfying because, yeah, maybe I am going to hold a plank. So it's it's mind, body, and breath. But yeah, it, it, it's... It's strengthening and soothing at the same time. And that sounds paradoxical. Well, it doesn't to me, but I, I can see why somebody hearing that might think that. But, you know, and, and we can really go on and on about, about yoga. But one thing that I always make sure to mention in a conversation about yoga, because I certainly didn't know this, is that many people think that yoga is just the physical practice or the asana. And most people don't know that there are seven other limbs or components Mm -hmm. of yoga and you can be doing yoga without even physically moving your body. And that can make a huge impact on your nervous system. So, so just being able to, to share those little nuggets and things to help people self-regulate, um, you know, that's great that you and your husband are so dedicated and committed to doing that in your retirement. I just love hearing it. Thank you. We really enjoy it. It's, It's just, it's so rewarding. You know, I I teach a a group in our community and it's so rewarding to see people actually slow down Mm -hmm. and know that it's okay to do that. You don't have to rush everywhere. Right. And and self-care is not selfish. So especially for first responders and and public safety personnel, self-care is not selfish. Self-care is critical. Because you can't take care of anybody else until you take care of yourself. Right. Yes. Which is probably one of the more difficult things for first responders to do, as we know. Of course. Stigma. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Trish, before we sign off, is there anything that you wanted to say or that I didn't ask? I mean, we covered a lot, but is there anything like that you want to just make sure that the listeners know or, or one last message and and also if anybody wants to reach out to you, how they can do that. Well, if anyone wants to reach out to me, that one's the easier one. My email is 
from, F-R-O-M-S-A, as in state's attorney, <laughs> to T-O, Yogi, Y-O-G-I, at gmail.com. So from S-A to Yogi at gmail.com. And I am always happy to listen um, to someone if they're planning retirement or starting their career. Um, the second part, and I know I did it in reverse chronological order. Is there anything okay. I will forgive you, prosecutor. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything I would want people to hear? You know, we live in really challenging times, and our public safety personnel are often subject to such intense criticism. And I guess I would say, have an open mind. You're never going to walk a mile in their shoes, but maybe take the time to learn about a Citizens Police Academy. Take the time to talk to a police officer or a prosecutor or a firefighter. Um, ask them how they're doing. Instead of being so quick to criticize what they did and why they did it. Um, you know, be compassionate and, and realize that first responders are making split-second decisions in the heat of the moment. And maybe take the time to, to really look at the facts before expressing opinions. Well, those are some wise words from a wise woman. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you find value, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or email us at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. I'd love to hear from you with questions, suggestions for future guests or topics that you would like to hear about. For anybody listening that's new to yoga, I've started a free YouTube channel, and I also post videos on my website. Check it out at wendyhummel.com or on my YouTube channel, which is just under Wendy Hummel. I'm also now enrolling for a limited time into my April cohort of my Radical Resilience Program. Basically, it's a lifestyle coaching program, a transformational experience based on holistic habits, circadian science. And you're doing this all with the support of a dynamic group that has the same goals as you do. If you're looking to make a change, shoot me an email to schedule a free strategy session, and we'll discuss if the program is a good fit for you. 